This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. In the mid-2000s, I was a college student, and I remember vividly the day I first signed up for this thing called Facebook. It was honestly kind of magical, this ability to connect with friends, old and new, and to do it so easily in my dorm room on a laptop. It sounds ridiculous now, but it really was awesome. Looking back on it, it feels like an entirely different world. Before Facebook became meta, it became a vessel for unhinged conspiracies and QAnon memes and narcissistic posturing. It's not a place to foster relationships with people anymore. It's a place where relationships grow more strained and weird and inhuman. And that's saying nothing about the staged and curated stream of images on Instagram or the short videos on TikTok or... uh, Twitter. Social networks used to be genuinely new ways to connect with real people. But social media is a demoralizing, algorithmic hellscape. So what happened? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Ian Bogost. He's a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, and he's a contributing writer at The Atlantic. His work explores the intersection of technology and life in a super clarifying way. And this was especially true in a recent piece he wrote called The Age of Social Media is Ending. Bogost is mainly writing in response to the recent takeover of Twitter by Elon Musk, which has brought about mass layoffs, confusing new policies around verification, and just general chaos. But it also sparked a renewed conversation about the role of Twitter in civic life, and whether this might be a good time to reevaluate our relationship with these platforms. Bogost walks us through the rise of social media over the past 10 to 15 years, and it's a story that is familiar and surprising at the same time. Ian and I dive into this history. But first, I wanted to ask him about what everyone on Twitter was talking about. Namely, Twitter itself. What does he make of the Elon Musk era so far? The chaos of it feels like a new truth revealed. Like an old truth that was always there. That we were pretending like all of this made sense. And it never did in in many different ways. And there's something honest, I know that's going to sound weird, something honest about Elon Musk, chaos agent, unearthing that fossil and showing it to the world, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's like the id, just manifesting. No, that's it, that's it. And he's all id in a way that, you know, is disturbing, but also 
kind of strangely comforting. I think this is one of the reasons why people are drawn to Musk as a figure, is that he appears to act on both reason and instinct at once. And that is definitely how social media works. It's like, I guess I wish he was just, um, I don't know, out there trying to figure out fusion energy or something and not shit posting all day. But well, you remember back when people treated him like this sort of Tony Stark figure, right? Yeah. And that seems like an eternity ago now. And he was maybe taken too seriously during that period. Yeah. He's revealed himself to be who he truly is. One thing I do find truly refreshing about Musk is that he is one of the rare, extremely wealthy people who just seems to do things. He's not just trying to maximize profit or start another company. I think that's terrifying too. But like buying Twitter as a hobby project, I mean, Grant's all highly leveraged and all that. Like there's something kind of charming about that in a way. <laughs> I guess. I think we'll circle back to old uh, Elon maybe at the end of this thing. Mm -hmm. I want to linger for a bit on a really interesting distinction you make in your recent piece between social networking and social media. Right. Something I intuitively understood, but I never quite framed it that simply in my mind, but it's enormously helpful once you do. So what were social networks and how were they different from what we now have in Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, all that stuff? So the simple way to think about it is that social networks is the name we gave to using networked computers to connect with people we mostly already knew, to establish and maintain our existing social relationships. And that might have been personal relationships on, you know, Friendster back in the day or later on, on Facebook. It might have been business relationships on, on LinkedIn. It might have been uh, community or hobby relationships on Reddit or platforms like that. But the reason you use social networks was to establish and maintain social bonds, usually with a relatively small number of people at once. And that's different from social media, which is about broadcasting to as many people as possible, even assuming that you ought to have as large an audience or just kind of temporarily inconvenienced famous person posting on the internet. Yeah. The social network is this passive thing. Mm -hmm. It's something that you can lean on, you can activate for contacts, for tips, for leveraging relationships or fostering relationships. But social media is this leviathan that lives and grows by capturing your attention and bombarding you with content and beckoning you to produce your own content. Right. I mean, what could go wrong with that? Right. right. You know, and also the platform owners of these social networks realizing, wait a minute, it would be much better for us in terms of, of engagement and data collection and ad value the more people produce and the more that they engage. Yeah. And that's one of the things that shifted as the social network era gave way to the social media era. But maybe another thing that's useful to point out here is that we've always had social networks. Like Social networking as a concept isn't a computer thing, it's on an internet thing. Everyone had and has relationships with others and all those people in your Rolodex, that's a social network or the folks you know from church or school or whatever, that's a social network. And we realized, well, you know, computers are good at keeping us in touch with things over the internet and we can kind of translate those networks to this format. And they were really, really, really good at that. I think one of the memories I have and that I think about often is when everyone got Facebook, which is kind of really when social networking went mainstream. That feeling was glorious. It was 
magical. It felt profoundly moving. It, it felt useful and meaningful. And those of us who were there at the time, maybe I've even forgotten that feeling, but a lot of people haven't. They still use it that way. How old are you, if you don't mind me asking? 45. I'm 40. I was in college when the original Facebook launched, and it was kind of awesome. Mm -hmm. The idea back then, if you'd have told me that it was going to become this engine of conspiratorial fever dreams, <laughs> I wouldn't have believed it. I mean, it's just, yeah. it is wild how it evolved. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I remember in the early days of the consumer internet when kind of email was all we had. And, you know, you get these sort of like crazy email forwards, like, you know, your uncle's friend or somebody would send them some <laughs> conspiracy theory and they would forward it. Oh, have you heard about this? And then that was sort of the earliest memory I have of that sensation of, you know, something that gets posted and shared on social media today, which is, you know, obviously false and wrong and preposterous, but that they get spread nevertheless. And back in those days, you delete the message and it killed it, killed it dead. That was it. And the only way to keep it alive was if you replied or you replied all, God help you. And so there were some signals that these dangers were out there even before we had social networks, let alone social media. And then we knew it a little bit when we got social networking, because there would be that one person in your Facebook, you know, who was just like, oh, I can't deal with this. And you'd unfriend them. I don't want you in my orbit. So we did kind of know what was coming, but it still was difficult to see it happening in the moment. We can only look back and mark those those moments. Is there a simple way to kind of tell the story of that evolution? I mean, I know you say there was a transition in 2009. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's the moment of a big shift. So maybe you can talk about what happened then. When I went to write the piece, I had this kind of revelation, you know, there's something about the transition from social networks to social media that explains what went wrong. And so I went looking and it was tough to pin down. And one of the things that I found is that the term social media has been around for a while. And when it was used in the sort of computational context, an early example I found from the early 2000s, it had the same meaning, which was like using social networks for information delivery, for, for sort of spread of messages. And that is the distinction I would make. So, you know, you use a social network to get something done in your actual life, to find a job, to find a mate, to connect with a friend or, or to see what a family member is up to. You use social media to transmit information, to broadcast. And the factors I think that had to be in place for that to happen at scale were several. The first one is there had to be enough of a base population in these networks that a message would spread widely, that, it could, that you could broadcast in the first place. There was a rise and fall of early social networks. You know, we had Friendster, MySpace, just a dozen others that died once Facebook came on the scene. And even Facebook in 2004, through really what, 2007, 2008, was initially only for college students, and then it spread from there. So you needed scale on the platforms. You needed to be able to reach enough people all at once. And that just took a few years, you know, of adoption. And then you needed an ability to both consume and author what we now call content, which I think is an artifact of this social media shift. And that, I think, demanded the smartphone. We didn't really get social media yeah. until the smartphone was not just invented, but adopted at scale. You think about the iPhone, you know, 2007, Android followed, and then, you know, a couple years to take off. 
And that's why I think that Instagram is sort of the moment when it was arrived. That's 2010, when Instagram launched. By then, we, we had social media in full. And, and prior to that, you have these sort of interesting little signals, these new growth shoots that are suggestive of, of what's to come. One of those is Twitter, which is absolutely a social network. It wasn't called that when it was launched in 2006 or 2007, but we didn't have this sort of mutual following thing that Facebook had. The whole idea was to talk to anyone, everyone, a chat room for the world. And then, of course, you also had things like the news feed, the ability to bring material from outside your network in and across it on Facebook and elsewhere were starting to emerge. And then it all, it all just amplified after that. I've been working on a book project the last few years or so, and part of that required me to sort of go through the history of communication. And a lot of this reminds me of the birth of the telegraph, something you mentioned in the piece, I think. This is the moment where communication becomes truly instant, where time and space aren't barriers, and it's really the beginning of this glut of information. Yeah. I mean, it's nothing like it is today, but it foreshadowed where we were headed, right? Right. And the thing about long-distance communication taking such effort like it did before the telegraph is that because it was so hard, you only did it when you really had something to say. Yeah, you really had to mean it. You know, it was high quality. It was meaningful. But once that goes away, it just opens up the floodgates to all the shit. The thing that we need the most today, but that we've always needed when it comes to communication technologies, is friction. Friction is great. And computers, and especially the design that we've adapted around uh, computational services, have, over the last two decades, been very, very adept at removing as much friction as possible. And that friction is what stops you. Not just because you like have self-control, because that's just never going to work. It stops you with other mechanisms. So you know, maybe the telegraph isn't something that people have a lived experience of, but the telephone certainly is. And you know, it used to cost money to make telephone calls, especially long distance. And so, you know, your mother or whomever would be like, what are you going to say? Like, it would get off the phone, like, make it efficient. Think about what you're going to do. Like, do I need to make this call? And that was one of the ways that that medium introduced friction. And now everything's free. Everything costs nothing to author and send. And that feels like a good thing, but it's not. And there's this, you call it a subtle mutation, where we came to think of social media as a natural way to live and work and socialize. What was so bad about that shift, coming to see social media in that way? The, the big thing to me is believing that you have an audience that is the world, mm. that you deserve that audience, that if you don't have it already, that in any minute it will open up to you as a YouTuber or an Instagrammer or a tweeter or whatever you are. And that that's a platform, you know, latent or real that you deserve. And then the flip side of it, when others have that platform, believing that you deserve an audience with them, that anything anyone says online, you can respond to, that you deserve to respond to, and, and that you're owed a response or a reaction. That's where the danger comes from. One way I've summarized it in this piece and others is people just weren't meant to talk to one another this much. It's too much talking to too many people all at once too frequently. And it's unprecedented in human history. I was reading for that book project a lot of Marshall McLuhan, and he had this idea of the internet as like a global extension of our nervous system. Right. 
extending it out to the whole world. And we're so deeply not wired for that. You know, this combination of knowing everything terrible that's happening in the world in real time and being totally impotent in the face of it is just poison for (laughs) the human psyche. Right. And he couldn't even have imagined Twitter. Oh, no. I mean, I mean, McLuhan's idea of the global village and these sort of other notions of how what he called electric media or whatever, you know, would would evolve and how they would benefit was mostly conceived as a way of remedying singular sense media formats like print or like cinema. And so he definitely, you know, never conceptualized network computing as we encountered it and as we have lived it. But if McLuhan were still around and talking about the internet, I think what he would have observed is that that idea, that idea of global connectivity or of a multi-sensory connection to a global village, that it would have inevitably overheated at some point. This is a word that McLuhan liked and flipped into its opposite. So like when you become intimately connected to everyone, then at some point that sort of flips on its head and you become disconnected from everyone. Yeah, And that's, that's where we're, we're at now, I think. I'll give you an example of what I mean. I was watching people lament the hypothetical imminent demise of Twitter, which isn't necessarily something I think is likely, but people have been lamenting it. Yeah. And they're very earnest, and they say things like, what will we do? We have this access with Twitter to kind of an instant feed of news all around the world, and how will we find out about those things? A weather emergency or, you know, another kind of a political event. And... What's interesting about that that sense of loss, that sentiment, is that that we're owed it, or that it's good for us to have that constant attention, rather than the thing that, that you need to know today, and the thing that you could read about in the newspaper tomorrow, or in the print book next year, or next decade. Everything just got completely collapsed. And maybe it's one of the reasons why we're all so anxious and freaked out all the time. It's just too much all at once, you know, overload. Oh, no, for sure. And at least the thing about social networking, as you define it, is it was it was constructive, right? You could go there, in theory, in order to facilitate doing something in the real world. But you go to social media now, and you don't go there because you're even interested in actual connection. You go there to scroll and consume. In other words, you just hand over your consciousness to the attention merchants who are mining your data yeah. for advertisers, and that's it. That's what you're doing. Right. And, and you know that's what you're doing. It's not that you've been duped or something. It's, it's that that has become a habit that is pleasurable on its surface. And, and when you go through that infinite scroll on one of these services, there's always something new, and there's a certain comfort to the idea that it never ends, and that you're not alone, and you're important, or you're not important, or any of those sensations. They do make sense. They tickle us. But they're just very different in nature from what we used to do on the very same service, especially on, on a service like Facebook, You know, where what you started social networking for, deepening the connections that you had to a small group of people, maintaining them over time. And I think one of the things that's so confusing about this shift from social networking to social media is that it did take place in large part with the very same platforms and technologies that we had acclimated to as social networking. And so we didn't notice. We're just kind of boiled frogs being brought along. And hmm. you know, even when Instagram arrived and others that followed in its footsteps, there was still a little bit of both. Instagram is very transitional in that way. You could still connect to people and see what they were doing instead of reading about it, you know, this image-based version of it. But then it turned into a 
a broadcast influencer platform too. So I just don't think we've reckoned with the fact that there was a transition and that we all went through it. We didn't kind of agree to it. We didn't know it was happening. And now on the other end of it, many years later, we can look back. This is another McLuhan thing, right? Like that you kind of can't know what's happening to you in the moment. You have to look back at it from a certain historical distance. And part of what makes it so insidious, as you said, is it's pleasurable, yeah. but it is not good. Yeah. It is stimulating, but it is not healthy. Yeah. And, you know, I think we knew, we knew where the dangers were. Some of us did. I mean, I, I recognized them. And I say that with some sorrow. Like, it was very unpopular, you know, back in the aughts, to be a naysayer about internet technology. You just, everybody was having a great time. And you're like, hold up, though. You know, like, what is this deal with collecting friends on Facebook? There's something insidious about that. You know, even if it's good on the surface, like, is that what my friends are? They're like this sort of collection, like I'm pinning butterflies to a board. And you would start to see people like look at their friend counts or their LinkedIn connection counts and start to fetishize the numbers. And and then you saw them chase likes when those things came out. And then there was the obsession associated with going back in with that sort of partial reinforcement that those technologies had from the very get-go. I bet something's new. You know, let me just open the website or later the app. So some of those dangers were, I think they were visible, but they were cut by the, the real benefits, the clear and obvious benefits that we took away from them. And then those benefits have been eroded every year. We're going to take a quick break. But when we're back, when social networking became social media, users became broadcasters. Why was that such a bad idea? Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, Maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I do want to emphasize the broadcasting part of this. I think you're right, but I think it would be helpful for you to say even more clearly why you think it's such a terrible idea that users become broadcasters. Yeah, so one of the great promises of the internet from the very start was what we now call democratization, that everyone would have a voice right. as a kind of publisher. And everyone's had a voice 
of some kind for a long time, but that voice might not have the reach that uh, you know a news personality or a, a famous writer or a filmmaker or, or a politician or a corporation had. And so one of the dreams of, uh, of the internet and of personal computing you know, in general was that uh, I was going to put some of that power into the, the hands of ordinary folks who were going to be able to end around these intermediaries to disintermediate the media industries and the, the opportunity to have access to an audience that was previously gatekeeped by uh, whomever, right? A publisher or a, some organization or agent of power. That's a great and forward-thinking idea, of course. But the problem is that you actually kind of don't want everyone to have a voice on everything all the time. And the more that we give everyone an opportunity, and in fact, kind of infinite opportunities, to litigate that problem, that idea that I, I am powerless or less powerful, I need to turn the tables on that power relationship and get access to the public that I am denied access to. That's a precious idea. It should be scarce and we should be very careful with it. And we did the opposite. We decided that the more of that, the better. The more speech, the better. It doesn't matter who it comes from. It doesn't matter what's behind it, what their intentions are, what their knowledge is, how far and fast it spreads, who benefits from its spread, all the rest of it that we've become intimately connected with just that we put as few barriers in place as possible. And, and even when we talk about contemporary problems with internet technology, conspiracy theories and you know all this kind of stuff, one of the commonest solutions to hear about is, well, it's just a moderation or a kind of content management problem or a copyright maintenance or infringement problem. We take for granted that all that speech ought to exist. We just need to, to curtail the bad stuff or you know make sure that someone's looking over it. Rather than to say, wait, 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 hold up. Do we want that volume? Can we sustain that volume of total speech by kind of all of humankind all at once? Or is that a bad idea to start from? So instead of everyone getting like a little bit more voice that they were going to take care of and be careful with, which of course they weren't, everyone got in their heads that they were the same kind of global broadcaster or, or potentially the same kind of global broadcast. And then you see it work, right? You know, you see an Alex Jones or, or someone arise, or just whomever, like your neighbor who becomes Instagram famous. And it's hard not to conclude, well, that might as well be me, because it's basically just, uh, just anyone. My God, I don't know if you've experienced wellness Instagram, but... Um Oh boy. Yeah. It's a scene. Yeah. It's the greatest experiment in sublimated narcissism in human history. But that whole influencer culture is a really weird, kind of sad, grifty spectacle. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you brought up influencer culture because one of the ways that social media success has been justified is like, look, you know, at least you can make a living at this and you can do it kind of as your own boss. This is a dream of many young people and not so young people to be, you know, an Instagram influencer, a YouTuber, a TikToker, what have you. And that idea that you should be able to make a living at your voice and your platform only adds more weight to the burden of that social illness. And of course, I, I also get it. Like this happened... Remember, we're talking about 2009, 2010, when I'm dating this moment. 
It's right after the financial collapse, the real estate crisis and the great recession that followed it. And so the opportunity to find or seek gainful employment, which you had greater control over your life, that was huge. This used to be like pretty contained, you know? Like I used to live in Los Angeles. Like all those folks you see now on Instagram all the time, like you know where to find them. They were selling you whatever cure-all they had heard about from their, you know, numerologist or Kabbalah instructor, whatever it was at the time. But it got kind of contained within a community. And it's almost almost like, like taking all of those kind of weird, interesting, previously harmless countercultures and unleashing them on the whole world. You talk about the blogging era as a kind of precursor to social networking. Right. Or form of social networking, even though that's a term people back then wouldn't have used. Is there any way in which this iteration of social media, for all its god-awfulness, solved a problem that the early internet bloggers kept running into? Namely, that no one really had eyes on anything user-generated that was being put out there for the public to see. Yeah, nobody looked at it. Right. You'd start a blog and nobody would read it. And that was... uh that was not even something that we realized immediately in the blogging world. And, you know, all of this same promise of like, have a voice, start a blog so you can be your own publisher. That stuff was still very much active. That was that kind of early internet culture stuff that goes back to California ideology and all back to the 60s, expressed on the web. And it was a kind of open secret that nobody was reading most most blogs. And then we got the kind of long tail concept as a justification, like, well, you know, you might be successful. It was a kind of like a lottery ticket. And it might have been better at the time to be more honest about what exactly it was that we were doing. Because some people saw blogging as diarying, right? Like uh, journaling. And they weren't necessarily doing it for anyone in particular or anyone at all, even if it was visible publicly. Whereas others were trying to build a platform or construe themselves as, as a replacement for the the mainstream press. We had the sort of whole, our bloggers, journalists debate at the time and all of that. So yeah, like when social media stepped in and said, what if people actually saw the things that you made? That was huge. And that was a corrective that the blogging world certainly needed because what's the point of having a voice that is just sort of shouting into the void? Or maybe a better way to put it is it was like misconstrued voice. Like If you have a voice and it's just reaching a few people, but they're the right ones, that's actually perfectly fine. Or it used to be. Yep. But you had to know why you were doing it and what benefit you were getting back from doing so as well. What is megascale and how does that shape the logic of the social media we have now? Yeah. Megascale, it's a term I borrowed from my Atlantic colleague, uh, Adrian LaFrance, uh, to describe this sort of, this idea in contemporary internet business culture that the best things are the ones that are the most massive, the most massive in terms of users, reach, revenue, profit, and that that reach, that scale has to be achieved like as rapidly as possible with the greatest possible value attached in the shortest amount of time. So this is sort of VC logic of the post-Web 2.0 internet era where you're failing unless you've reached, you know, a billion users on, you know, a massive profit margin from extracting data and selling ads or whatever it is that you're, that you're doing is usually extracting data. And that logic of megascale means that when you make a product, so a company like Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp or whatever, I guess it's all Facebook, right? You're designing a kind of a machine, like a really simple machine that and you turn the crank of the machine and it does the same thing 
for everyone, and everyone is a thousand, a million, a billion people. And so everyone gets sort of treated in the same manner, right? So another feature of megascale is a kind of sameness. Yeah. It's like a, a kind of a new version of factory style industrial capitalism, but with respect to the way that ideas are crafted and disseminated rather than products. And so the megascale is important as a frame because those business circumstances drove the development of the products and services that we call social media which then created in the users, whether they were creators or consumers of social media, the drive, the desire to themselves megascale their little corner of the internet as much as possible. So the only categorical good from the perspective of a company like Facebook, like the only way to judge any piece of content is how much engagement it gets, the size of the audience it reaches, right? It's just built to perpetually scale up. There's no limit there's no ceiling, just endless growth. Yeah. Forever. Whatever the <laughs> whatever the whatever the consequences. Yeah. Which is an important caveat. Well, and that worked fine when no one was looking at the consequences or no one knew about them or when the consequences were uh, were were less fraught or less serious. And then we started to notice, you know, in the mid 2010s, and people started getting upset, but at that point it was too late. You know, these companies had amassed so much power, so much influence, so much wealth, that it was just very difficult to turn the knob down, to downscale, which is the solution to megascale. And that's still very much the case. We're just now starting to see some signs that something like downscale might be possible. It certainly didn't come from regulatory reform. When Apple quashed some of the features of data extraction from smartphone apps. That's one of the first steps that ruined or at least began to unravel the business of Facebook and forced it in part to turn to this metaverse folly and all the rest and and the macroeconomic effects that we're undergoing now that have driven the value of these uh, giant company stock way, way down is another factor. But yet we're still out there on the internet every day doing the same kinds of things that we were doing five or ten years ago. Who would have thunk it that prioritizing engagement over all else incentivizes the worst of us and is probably not super good for the world, but I guess it's a little late for that now, right? This isn't really something you can tweak. It's the whole damn business model of the platforms. It's really hard to change. When I talk about it with this article, you know, the people who are concerned or who object to it, they're like, well, I mean, easy for you to say, you know, on the Atlantic, that you deserve an audience and no one else does. Is that what you're saying? And it's not what I'm saying, but I understand that sentiment, right? Haven't we been told now for years, for decades, you too deserve the platform yeah, just as much as anyone else for whatever you want to use it for. And we all have to somehow overcome that sensation if we want to win back whatever it is that we lost. And I'm, I'm just not sure how or if it's possible. You bring up some rather old social science about the different kinds of relationships we have. Right. We have the strong ties, that's the connections with our friends and our family, people we actually know in three dimensions in the real world. And then we have these weak ties, people with whom we're, we're loosely connected. And as life moves more and more online, more and more of our ties are becoming weak. Or maybe it's actually worse than that. Maybe what you're really saying is that the distinction between strong and weak ties is becoming blurry. Mm. And that makes us more susceptible to the influence of strangers online or the mob online, however you want to put it. I mean, is that a fair characterization? Oh, yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think it's both of those things. I've thought about this quite a bit. And when 
when you develop a whole lot of weak ties, most people don't do that. Like most people are, are fairly tightly connected. And it's more difficult than you think to maintain a whole mess of weak ties. That's when we sort of start to change from, I don't know, being an ordinary citizen to something that the word celebrity points to. You know, when everyone knows you or knows of you, or when you have a relationship, even if it's not one of direct interaction with a lot of people, then, you know, you're sort of starting to ford the river into the world of celebrity, of that kind of renown. And there's always been a madness associated with that way of being in the world. But at least in its traditional sense, fame came with material benefit. And that also undid so many people, you know? So it's not that it solved the problem, really. But you could build a certain life around it and in defense of a sense of self and a sense of privacy and disconnection. But online, we can't do that in part because even if you're kind of like super famous on the internet, it's really hard to make an actual living there. Although there's always this promise of whatever YouTuber is making $50 million a year, whatever Instagrammer is making, whatever they're making, right? So there's that sort of dangling notion. But the vast majority of folks, they can't make a living for themselves, or if they do, it's a very modest one. And so that's created this sort of torsion between the idea of what you're gaining and what you're losing when you shift your social relationships. But then I think you're also right that every relationship kind of looks and works the same now. And I mean that almost like literally, you know, like the way that your very close friends or your family members or your children or your parents or whatever show up on your feed is the same as the way that some rando does. And so everybody looks the same. They appear phenomenally the same to you and their ideas are the same as anyone's. That's strange. Like we have definitely not reckoned with that. Almost like almost like a typographical observation. We have definitely have not reckoned with it. Part of me wants to say, well, we're not that dumb, right? We're not we're not that persuadable. But it really isn't a question of intelligence, I don't think, right? Right. We're social creatures and as our social context changes, so will our mechanisms of influence. You shouldn't expect anything else. Yeah. The thing that modernism in the historical sense gave us as people started to live in close proximity to one another in urban environments before industrialism and then during it, there was an alienation associated with one of the defining characteristics of the modern era, that just being in physical proximity to people you didn't know and would never see again was messed up. It was something we had to learn how to deal with. Yeah. And the way that we learned how to deal with it was by sort of channeling that energy and transforming it into a, a kind of theft, right? A kind of pleasure in the casual encounter. And you see this when you see people write about like how much they love about New York City. It's because you can be a jerk anywhere you go and then you'll never see them. And they don't, they don't really say that, right? Like this idea of like deriving, of like channeling energy out of the crowds and this sort of notion. It is a kind of precursor defense to internet life. But even in a city, we didn't encounter that at the scale that we do online and not at the frequency like you know you'd be out in the street or in your car whatever you're doing and then you and then you come home or you go into the office or you go to the market or whatever it is you're doing there's a, like an ebb and flow to that alienation but now you've got your phone with you all the time it's it's always there so what would it take for all of us to take a step back from social media 
and just quit. That's coming up after one last quick break. You say society needs to quit. Social media, like it collectively quit smoking in the 20th century. What would that entail? Point the way, Ian. Yeah. We need a leader. So show me the way up towards the light here. I think the big thing, we've known that smoking was bad for us physically for decades, decades before we saw social change or regulatory legal change. The lesson I take from that is it wasn't enough to have science prove that something was bad for you and to make the choice on your own. And we're still talking about social media or everything else that way. Well, you know, you don't have to use it. It's just a personal choice. But that's not really true exactly. Like just as in order to get by in the social world in the 1950s or 1960s, you kind of had to be a smoker. Or even if you weren't one, you were effectively a smoker because everyone around you was doing it. You have to live your life online in some way Say goodbye. You have to have a LinkedIn. You have to kind of be on Twitter, Instagram, or somewhere where you're interacting with people professionally or personally. Otherwise, you're kind of a weirdo. So I think what that suggests is that until we get some kind of change in the social fabric that begins to ostracize the use of these tools and to provide alternatives that are not really alternatives, it's not like, well, leave Twitter and go to Mastodon or Hive or whatever it is that people are trying to do to recreate exactly the same addiction that they previously had without Elon Musk at the helm. That's the wrong answer. The right one would involve, okay, we need to change the environment. Like if smoking is is literally killing us, then we need to make it so you, you can't smoke in certain places where maybe the first ones would be where you're most likely to want to, bars, restaurants, planes. Those are the things that we did first. And so where discourse is kind of most urgent and most important, for example, when it's about electoral politics, let's say, right? <laughs> or about health. Yeah. Those are opportunities. Actually, like, no, like, maybe these, this shouldn't happen on these. I don't know. And how we go about doing that is, of course, a big puzzle. I'm not going to try to suggest the specifics, but that's one approach to the kind of downscale that I think needs to happen. The other one, of course, is we need to go back to something more like social networking. Throwing away, deleting the apps, that's just a, it's not going to work. But changing them in a way that allows you to benefit from the connections that really do make sense to have and maintain and develop, that is a kind of downscaling that, that would really make sense. We could do that tomorrow with the tools that we have already. It's just that there's no incentive for the companies that provide those services to enact them. And that means either the public has to ask for it, but remember that we're not paying for these services. We're just generating data that they use to sell to advertisers, so we don't really have control of it. Well, maybe the market shift that we're seeing might have an influence on it because they got to do something. Why is Facebook doing the metaverse? You know, just because they got to do something else. And of course, you know, there is the possibility of regulatory intervention, but I, I don't think that you can lead with that. It's It's got to start with a sort of social practice, you know? And that's what we saw with smoking too. Like, please just don't smoke here. You know, like, this is gross. Like, go outside, right? And hang out with the other smokers. So what that kind of like social ostracization would look like for social media, the real interesting puzzle to at least begin thinking about. 
I think the problem with any of these suggestions is that because everything is so scaled up, because of mega scale, it's hard to imagine how they ever become effective if it's just a small minority of a community partaking. Well, one of the things I've heard a lot and I've seen resuscitated in recent days with all the Musk chaos, and that is this call to treat Twitter, say, as a public utility. I'm actually not even sure what that means or what it would look like, but what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody knows what it means. It really just sounds kind of good. <laughs> right. It's like, let's nationalize Twitter. And I mean, okay. I mean, I, I guess the sentiment is if you got it out of the hands of profiteers, then it would be better controlled as a service for all. But the problem with that is like Twitter is already a terrible business in the start, right? It's not like Twitter was maximizing profits. That's one of the reasons why yeah. it was kind of like up in the auction block, you know, so to speak. And the other, the other thing I wonder about is like, we're not living in the mid 20th century age of infrastructure development anymore. So the idea that we'll kind of roll out as a general public service, some version of Twitter or Facebook, it, it feels like a, a historical idea. But I think what people have in mind there is like, they're dreaming that this is just a problem of agency or of leadership and that, you know, in the right hands, all of these tools could be used for good. And the mistake is that you still would bring Megascale along for the ride. So until you get rid of Megascale, that's really the thing that they should be focusing on. Not like, you know, bring it to the people or, you know, treat it as a public utility or something like that. It's rather downscale it. And if that means breaking the companies up, you know, like, baby bell style, I don't know, then okay, like then I would be listening, then we're at least on the right track. But the call to sort of infrastructuralize something, I think it's just a, just kind of another trope to share on social media. The idea of Twitter as some kind of public square, which I've, I think this is something Musk has made random noises about. Yeah, it's a Muskism. It seems so utterly bizarre and stupid to me for lots of reasons. But, you know, the public square cannot be the entire world. Exactly. Because we can't engage meaningfully with that. Exactly. For all the reasons we've said, it's too much. We're not wired to absorb that. It cannot be anything but what it is, an overwhelming sea of content and noise and algorithmic outrage. That's it. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, the problem is you say, okay, well, let's do that. Let's do what you say. We'll make it a town square and your your town square is going to be your actual town or your neighborhood or something. And then they go like, no, 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 that, that's not what I meant, though. I want that audience. I want that platform that I was promised. I want to democratize this. Like, why do you get to speak to the whole world, but I can only talk to my neighbors? That absolutely isn't what folks have in, in mind. And until we kind of acclimate, reacclimate to that, if we can, I don't know if we can. I really don't know the way out of this it will be impossible to take seriously any reformation, which is why I'm kind of dreaming for them to collapse on themselves. The idea of Twitter ending, I think is a pipe dream, but it would be glorious. I don't know if it would be a domino falling, but it would at least be something. I'm here for it. I've been trying to quit Twitter for about a year and a half now, and I wasn't able to do it, but I've scaled back to the point where I'm just tweeting less and less. But when I am away from that platform, that freaking site, I'm so much happier. <laughs> yeah, you can think. Life is better out there without it. Yeah. But at the same time, I think like you, it's a bit of a contradiction, right? Because like there are aspects of Twitter, I'm not sure I'd be where I am professionally without. Oh, definitely. It has been awesome in lots of ways too. Oh, absolutely. 
I think the price has been too high. Yeah. One of the problems with the discourse machine the internet has created is that it's impossible to think two thoughts at once <laughs> anymore, especially if they're in mild conflict with one another. Yeah. But it's absolutely the case that we've benefited from it. And yet, we shouldn't continue to. And th that's not a, like a hypocritical idea, as if a hypocritical idea is one that must be discarded anyway. Yeah. But, you know, it very much stops people in their tracks because they're on the internet, they're on social media trying to like win these fights, which is one of the ways that we use these services. And if we, again, if we sort of like staunch that bleeding, if we allowed ourselves or forced ourselves not to have so much voice, then maybe we would have the room in our minds and our calendars to think different thoughts and do different deeds. Well, I rather like the idea of at least pausing in this moment with all the chaos going on at Twitter and just reassessing our relationship with social media. Even if it's only for a while, it's good for you. That's what is truly unique about this moment. Like, even if it's just a moment, to have this many people all at once taking that moment, that could lead to some kind of change. Here, here. This was a lot of fun, man. Your writing on this topic is super interesting and much appreciated. Your recent column in The Atlantic is called The Age of Social Media is Ending. Ian Bogost, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much. It's been great. Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Drozdowska is our editor. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. Hopefully Twitter's still around by the time you hear this. Actually, no. I hope Twitter's not around by the time you hear this. I hope it's gone forever. But seriously, as someone who uses social media, that transition, it's significant. And we probably don't think enough about what it means and what it did to us. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line, as always, at thegrayarea at vox.com. You can check out Ian's writing on social media and tech at The Atlantic. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends. And for maximal irony, why not tweet about it? Hell, throw an at Elon Musk in there while you're at it. Let's see what happens. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.